0: The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales Episode 31, A Certain Ring to It Jack and Lucas met Isabel in the archives at the first opportunity. They could hear Moot shelving books, and when they looked, they saw the archivist enlarging shelves and organizing tomes that had the appearance of barely bound shadows and mist. Making space for the tales yet untold, it replied. They left Moot to its tasks and sat around a table in a small alcove that looked like a medieval scriptorium. Isabel was most at home in such places, and the last three-part tale from Baba Yaga had shaken her to the core. How could she take something like the Swan Children and twist it like that, she asked. I mean, yes, there are many aspects of the story that are difficult. The young woman's loss of her family, first her brothers when she is too young to know, and then her husband and child even though those relationships and her power of speech are restored after hardship. Still, her story was full of darkness not present in any of the versions I know. I thought I was going to be trapped in her hut forever. We have Moot to thank, not just for this safe place, but for the fact that, so far at least, she's following some set of rules. She let us go each time and stopped after a different card was chosen. Following rules, as I've said, is not really part of her makeup, so she probably finds it novel to be made to do it, Lucas replied. Moot smiled as it worked. Acknowledgement was not unpleasant. We have to be on our guard, though, Lucas went on. She didn't exact revenge during her stories for the loss of Kostje's soul egg, which means she's saving it for later, probably just when we think she's forgotten about it. We know what she wants, and we will all be enlisted in her ultimate pursuit of escape, even if she fixes it so that we're trapped somewhere for eternity as she takes her leave. As we all experienced when she dragged us back into the story at her whim, Lucas saw Jack's hand go to his throat at the remembrance. He was wearing a high necked sweater. Lucas could imagine the ghost of a bruise. His ear still hurt, since that was how the witch had dragged him back in. He looked furtively at Isabel's arms for signs of injury. She seemed all right. He couldn't bear the thought of the witch hurting her, even though he hadn't yet said a word about how he felt. Maybe Baba Yaga was staying true to her tendency to show greater kindness to certain girls who crossed her threshold, as opposed to her usual cruelty to male heroes. Lucas, you were saying? You're off with the non-existent Russian fairies, laddie, Isabel prompted, laying a hand over his in an attempt to get his attention. She got it instantly. Oh, sorry, said Lucas. I was distracted. A lot going on. Anyway, I think life is going to get a lot scarier and more unpredictable now that she's shown her hand completely. We have to be prepared. I think you're right, Jack rejoined. But I mean, look at us. We're pretty marginal. We all have some sort of work and way of getting on day to day, but none of us are terribly materially grounded. There's not a lot she can take from any of us in terms of stuff. Lucas has no family here. I only have my mother and it's not like I can see her. Scattered cousins wouldn't notice whether I were here or not. And no offense, Isabel, but while you have family, they certainly don't act like they consider you one of them. A profound relief and joy, I can assure you, Isabel said. Really? All we seem to have is each other, Jack concluded. Yes, Lucas replied, but don't kid yourselves. She'll undermine that if she can or take whatever little we might take for granted. Isabel reached out two open hands. Lucas and Jack each grasped one and then completed the circle. They remained silent a while. Lucas felt the roughness of Jack's skin. Isabel noticed too. You have the hands of an honest man, Jack, not a keyboard jockey, she teased. I like to carve and make things, Jack said. I wouldn't say I'm good at it, but it brings me peace. Like programming, I design things, solve problems, but unlike my day job, making things lets me make a mark. I wanted to show you this. I carved a replica of Isabel's nut from her story about Jack who beat death for a time. He took out the beautifully crafted and polished hazelnut shell with the little hole in one end. I even took a walk on a beach when restrictions eased and found a piece of driftwood to make a stopper. I was thinking of giving it to my mom as a gift. She keeps boxes and boxes of all the crap I ever made at school. That's beautiful, Jack, Isabel exclaimed. She'll love it. You have a real talent, Lucas said. Jack smiled. Secretly, he had often wished over the past several months that he could keep his whole life, everyone and everything he loved, safe in a tiny world of his own making. But there you go, he mocked himself. Everyone knew programmers had terrible god complexes. When it came time for Isabel to tell her story, her guests were described as entering a simple stone cottage with the sound of the sea off in the distance. There was a crackling fire, rugs on the floor, and a chair for everyone. Isabel began, hello everyone. We spent the last three weeks hearing tales in Baba Yaga's hut. I thought I would bring you to one of the kinds of houses my spirit lives in, even if I have actually never resided in such a place. I said when we signed off last time that rings were troublesome things. From rings that contain ensnared and ensorcelled kingdoms such as those worn by Elena the Wise, to Anvari's cursed ring that helped bring about the ruin of Asgard, to Tolkien's one ring and beyond, the jewels worn on the hands seem to touch and grasp greater power and peril than those worn anywhere else. With the possible exception of the necklace of the Brisingaman, but that mainly brought ruin to Freya. There are many legends of St. Mungo also called Kentigern patron saint of Glasgow. I am coming to the opinion that Celtic saints are a little like certain homegrown Russian ones, rather more down to earth, perhaps than those holy personages imported into the Pantheon. Babiaga sniffed disdainfully. Her reaction was not lost on Isabel whose responses seemed serpent-quick, particularly to Lucas. Isabel continued, pointedly. One of the most famous legends about St. Mungo is the story of the ring in the fish, which appears on Glasgow's coat of arms. The tale runs that the king gave his lady queen a certain ring as a gift, and she in turn bestowed it on a young and gallant knight as a favour, along with certain other of her favours, since the enraged monarch found the ring on the knight's finger as he lay sleeping in the queen's chambers. Rather than confront the queen directly, the king devised a test that he was sure would trap her. He threw the ring into the sea and then summoned his lady, asking her to produce it. Kentigern, using his virtue to redeem hers, went out on the sea and caught a fish. Slicing it open, he produced the disputed ring, and the queen's honor was saved. However, in doing this, the holy man knew he was engaging in the deception of his sovereign. Accordingly, the father of lies, the old Nick himself, confronted him as he was working in the fields near his little hermitage, tending his garden. You lied to the king to save his faithless wife! the devil accused. I know nothing of deception, Kentigern said. I saved the queen through prayer that I would be able to find her ring. In all the vast sea, that bounty was yielded to me as a righteous outcome. It could easily have been otherwise. I cannot comment on her past sins, but I did not feel she deserved death if heaven did not will it. You mean you know nothing of deception or illusion, and yet you toil as a, what did that windbag of a messiah call you all, a fisher of men? Do you want to learn, mortal, about lies and deception, that you may recognize and thwart their effects in your work? The young holy man pondered a while and agreed that gaining such experience would prove useful in his ministry. Give me your ring as payment for my teaching, said the devil. The priest's ring was of beautiful design, and had been given to him, it was said, either by his mother, who was a relative of King Arthur, or by Merlin on his deathbed, when, as a new priest, Kentigern had given him baptism, putting paid to the rumors that the sorcerer had allowed himself to be imprisoned in the branches of the blackthorn by Morgan the Fay, a prickly problem to be sure, but one we will not try to untangle here. Only the wearer himself knew who actually gave him the ring. In any case, the ring of all his few possessions was dear to him, and it was a thing of great power. The devil held out his hand and tapped a cloven hoof impatiently. Swishing his tail, his great wings pumping slowly in and out like bellows. Reluctantly, Kentigern dropped the ring into the upturned palm. The devil's clawed fingers closed round it, and he threw back his head <laughs> and laughed. He planted one cloven foot in hell, and the clawed hooks of his mighty wings in heaven grasped Kentigern like a doll and threw him a thousand times a thousand miles. He landed in a desert, far from the locks, heather and sea coast of his experience. He rose and decided to go looking for a monastery in order to seek shelter and work until he could gain passage back home by some means or service. But there were no monasteries or churches in this land and Kentigern could not speak the language. But work and food are universal human needs to be given and accepted, and in the bustling marketplace, the displaced young man met the chief cook to the king of that land, who engaged him to carry supplies. Impressed with the lad's strength and willingness, the cook gave Kentigern a place to sleep and said he could learn the unskilled work of the kitchen. The new Scullion learned fast and soon increased in skill and responsibility, handling entire services for state banquets and other important events within a short time. The handsome youth came to the attention of the king's youngest daughter, and they fell in love. Celibacy was not a requirement of the Celtic church in the early days, and so Kentigern could have wed in his homeland and still served the church without censure. His faith was not an issue for the king particularly, but his station was. I did not raise my daughter to be the consort of a cook, he screamed, banishing them from the court. They were driven out into the desert where Kentigern built them a shelter near a source of water. Accustomed to making things grow in a cold and rocky land, He turned his talent to his arid, sandy new home, and soon he and his wife had a small oasis with a garden and an orchard to sustain themselves. They also built a barn and acquired some livestock through trading. Within a few years, they had started a family as well. Two boys and a girl were born to them, and Kentigern felt his life was complete. Twelve Years passed in Happiness and then the rains came, and that was the end of kentigern's world. The parched ground drank the water until it overflowed into raging floods. Trying to save his family, kentigern gathered his little daughter and youngest son in one arm, his oldest boy in the other. When he saw his wife half drowned, clinging to some floating branches, he reached forward to save her and let go of his children. When his wife saw her babies were lost, she let go of the branches and let the rising water take her, that they might be together in the next world. Bereft of everything, Kentigern did the same. He was fetched up in the sea by a poor fisherman who sold him to a slave trader. The trader took him many more miles away, landing in a port city famous for goldsmithing and blown glass. The land was ruled by a duke who loved finely crafted things. His master goldsmith spied Kentigern with the slavers, and even in his reduced state, the goldsmith could see he was strong and capable. He bought him, explaining, I need someone to tend the bellows and keep the fires at the right heat master this and i will see to it you learn more kentigern proved himself an attentive and capable worker and soon the goldsmith was teaching him his craft in the junior goldsmith's fingers gold flowed like silk kentigern made a golden salmon for the duke's birthday with fanciful scrollwork in the remembered style of his homeland enamelled on the fins and tail small jewels speckling its back and a pale sapphire for each eye. The salmon was arching, ready to leap out of beaten silver waves. The duke was very impressed and asked Kentigern what he knew of jewels. I know what the master goldsmith has taught me and what I recall from my home, the young man answered. My daughter is beset by dreams of a great jewel the color of the roiling sea his liege explained. She barely eats or sleeps. She's wasting away before my eyes. She says it can be found in a cave high in a cliff overlooking a bay shaped like the salmon you've made for me. For so her dreams tell her. Kentigern agreed to try and find the gem giving instructions to the Duke's boat builders to make him a round boat of flexible but sturdy skin and bark, such as he recalled from his faraway home, for he felt this journey would complete some circle in his own life. He searched in vain until one day he heard boys talking about the excellent swimming and fishing in the Bay of the Leaping Fish. He asked the boys directions, and they told him where to find the bay, making him promise not to fish it empty. I promise you fish are not the prize. I seek there, he assured them. He found the bay, scaled the cliff face and entered the cave to his profound disappointment. It was empty, save for some rough, dark rocks littering the floor. He picked one of these up and threw it against the back wall in frustration. The black outer stone shattered into shards revealing an uncut gem the color of the roiling sea. Kentigern tucked the jewel into his shirt and decided to sleep for a few hours. As he slept, the sea rose. He was awakened by water lapping in little waves into the cave. Once again, Kentigern let the flood take him. He was rescued by another fisherman who recognized his clothes as being of the Duke's household. And he escorted Kentigern back himself, hopeful of a reward. Kentigern handed the jewel to the duke, who in turn presented it to his delighted daughter. Whatever you want for this service, it is yours, the duke promised. My freedom and a ship to carry me home came the reply. And so it was done. During the journey, Kentigern caught a fine fish, a salmon, though they were not often to be found in the open sea at this time of year. Remembering his love of cooking and remarking the fine evening, he decided to prepare it himself for his supper, asking that the means be brought to him on deck. He slit the fish open, preparing to clean it, when out slipped his enchanted ring. Kentigern was suddenly back at home before the devil who was sprawled across a rough bench, polishing his talons and sighing with boredom. You are a slow learner, priestling. That took almost an hour. Do you understand something of deception and illusion now? The young man, despite having lived lifetimes of hardship and loss in the blink of an eye, found the wisdom to say that yes, he had. And from that day forward, the old Nick left Kentigern alone, and he became a wise counsellor and holy man, we know more commonly today as Saint Mungo. Some say that when he died, he asked not to go to heaven, but to continue his work of bringing wisdom to the world in the form of an immortal salmon who swims through the worlds of men to this day. Isabel pressed the hot key, King of Diamonds. Lucas rubbed his hands together. Looks like I'm going fishing, he said. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.